Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garnett. It's Thursday, January 13th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Biogen. Of course, I assume you'd expect nothing less for us. We'll break down Medicare's draft coverage decision for the company's Alzheimer's treatment, Aduhelm, and all of the fallout that has ensued. We're also going to chat with Michael Gilman. He is the CEO of Arrakis Therapeutics about the science behind an emerging class of drugs called targeted RNA degraders. First, stat health tech reporter Katie Palmer joins us to chatty Kathy about this week's news, mostly what we learned at the virtual JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. I like how we verbified chatty Kathy. <laughs> but first, a word from our sponsor. Over 1.5 million changes happened in clinical trials in 2021 alone. Of those, only 8% were relevant events to people working in the life sciences industry. If you work in investment, strategy, or competitive intelligence, separating the relevant from the irrelevant can be hugely time-consuming. That's where Stat Trials Pulse comes in. Using proprietary machine learning and editorially-driven algorithms, we sort through all those millions of events in real time, to surface the ones that are most relevant to you. Built by AI company Applied XL and vetted by STAT's national biotech team, STAT Trials Pulse will help you find newsworthy data before it becomes a headline. Try it out for your first four weeks free. If you like what you see, enjoy a special introductory rate available through February 2022. Learn more at statnews.com slash trialspulse. So as most listeners to this podcast know, we are just coming out of the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, the virtual conference this year. We all participated in one way or the other. Uh, and I'd like to bring on Katie Palmer, our health tech reporter. Uh, Katie, you also listened to a bunch of presentations at the J.P. Morgan Conference this year. And what, what are your biggest takeaways? Yeah, this is my my first GPM, which is the case for most of the, us on the health tech team because there just was a much larger presence this year from both digital health slash health tech companies in general, which I guess one of the big takeaways is just how broad that field is really. So it's tough to talk about the class as a whole. We're talking about, you know, insurance companies that are adopting technology to, you know, develop different financial models. You're talking about digital health companies that are primarily focused on virtual care. You're talking about companies that are trying to completely upend primary care models by using a combination of telehealth and brick and mortar locations. Um, so it's really all over the place and it's tough to do a high level takeaway. But I think the main thing is that a lot of these companies are still really young in the way that they are presenting themselves, both to patients and investors. Um, there are very few, few citations. You know, you you've got your typical readouts that you're looking for, right? There is no consistent readout from many of these different business types that we're seeing presenting at JPM. Yeah, I was curious. You know, one thing, even just from like my my somewhat distance from health tech in general, it seemed like the, the hype cycle was such that lots of companies would describe a problem, a well-known problem in healthcare, and then point to their app or their algorithm or some combination thereof and be like, this is the solution. And then you'd read a story that they'd raised X hundred million dollars privately, and then they'd gone public at X billion dollar valuation. Everyone's very excited. And then it just seemed like there'd be a steady beat of news that was like, 
actually the uptake isn't great or actually they're not getting reimbursement for this. And so broadly, there seemed to be this kind of hangover coming from from 2021. So I was going to ask you, I mean, is that is that broadly been your your observation? And so then like kind of what are the the vibes in health tech like going into 2022 as like the rubber is kind of meeting the road for some of these companies that that had the better part of the hype cycle in the past? Yeah, I mentioned the last year, you know, the last two years, it's been extremely easy to make the case for any type of solution that relies on virtual care or telehealth. You could just point to the pandemic and say, this is obviously going to be the future. But, you know, after that first initial spike of telehealth adoption leveled off, it's still higher than it was at the beginning of the pandemic, but it's it's much, much lower. Um, And I think it's definitely harder for these companies to continue to maintain based on the limited evidence that they're presenting that their solution is going to be the solution going forward. You know, especially if you look at, you know, primary care solutions overall. Um, you've got companies that are, again, like I said, focusing extremely on a, like a niche in virtual care. Uh, it's tough to see how if you're just focusing on mental health, you're going to, you know, compete against all of the existing healthcare infrastructure around mental health and be like the sole winner there. So you've got companies like uh, Talkspace that are really trying to make the case that they are going to be the leader. And it's, you know, they can show short-term growth, but they're not showing the outcomes in a consistent way uh, for providers to choose them as a solution. And they're not showing the uptake consistently to convince investors that they're the solution. Hey, Meg, you spent this week talking to a lot of pharma and biotech CEOs. Uh, What did you hear? Well, so my conversations mainly were on CNBC with the CEOs uh, in interviews. Um, We talked with the CEOs of starting Monday morning, Moderna, Pfizer, Gilead, um, Novavax, Merck, Bristol-Myers, and then later in the day, the CEO of Illumina. And then we talked with Baxter and uh, Novartis um, Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of a COVID-heavy group uh, for the most part, particularly on Monday. So, you know, we were really talking about what's happening with the vaccines, um, whether we're going to need a, a next dose. And the vibe that I got from Moderna and Pfizer is that they are still full speed ahead on updating the vaccines to cover Omicron or potentially Omicron and other strains. And they're figuring out, you know, what's going to be needed and when. And Moderna in particular was really focused on the fall of this year, um, kind of looking at the booster push then. So I think that's something that we're going to be hearing a lot more about over the next few months. Um, I think there was a meeting of sort of regulatory heads from around the world uh, that the uh, European regulators sent out a, a release on Thursday morning saying they're trying to harmonize, figuring out what to do with the vaccine. So that was a lot of my conversations ar- around at, at JP Morgan with with a lot of these folks. Um, we were talking about vibe with Katie in the health tech space. Adam, what was the vibe in the biotech space? I mean, you know, I think you get the, you know, obviously when you listen to the presentations, of, uh, you get the sort of optimistic outlook and how everything's fine and you know, programs are progressing. Um, when you step back from that and you and you listen in or you talk to participants you know, on the investor side, you know, I think that what you heard was probably that this was not the most newsworthy J.P. Morgan conference that they've ever participated in. That you know, there wasn't a lot of big news. Clearly, there wasn't a lot of M and A. I mean, if there was a big blockbuster M and A deal, we would have been talking about it. And you you haven't heard us mention that. So there really wasn't anything on that front, which I think you know is probably uh, from an expectation perspective, it's probably a little unrealistic. But again, it it sort of 
people get disappointed when you don't have a big deal on the Monday morning that J.P. Morgan uh, kicks off. Um, but, you know, I think what was kind of interesting, and, and maybe, Damien, you can speak to this a little bit, is also, uh, you know, in the partnership and the collaborations kind of things that we did hear about, it was sort of interesting to me that we heard a lot of sort of big pharma, big biotech doing research collaborations kind of on cool sciencey things early stage you know you had probably the deal that we heard about most was the Pfizer uh, the Pfizer agreement the Pfizer partnership with beam therapeutics yeah so the the agreement there was Pfizer basically paying beam which is a, a genome editing company focused on I mean it's probably too pat to say CRISPR 2.0 but but focused on something called base editing which is a more precise form of, of CRISPR genome editing, paying them a bunch of money in order to partner on a few programs. And so, you know, it wasn't what the sort of like cynical desire is coming into JP Morgan, which is a multi-billion dollar takeout. But I think as people kind of pick that apart, it was a sign that, you know, of a few things that I think investors like. One, cash-rich pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer willing to spend that money on speculative ideas in biotech. And then two, Companies like Beam, which was only founded a few years ago and is based on science that is um, also only a few years old, getting that sort of validation from the biggest wheels of industry. Like these are generally positive trends. And it's also, you know, it's interesting because we're watching genome editing, a, a new technology, kind of go through, speaking of hype cycles, what we've seen from gene therapy, from cell therapy, from CRISPR 1.0. And that doesn't mean that it's destined for, uh, you know, disappointments and, and revitalizations and then further disappointments as those other technologies have. But we're kind of like clicking over to that next notch in, in the path of this, you know, becoming a medicine and becoming like a big investable opportunity. So, you know, glass half full. Uh, biotech exists. It's still healthy. Uh, JP Morgan happened. And, um, and we're all moving forward. And I want to swing this back to, to Katie. You know, Katie, you spend a lot of time of your reporting here at STAT uh, looking at the intersection of technology and diabetes care, uh, and you've got a special report out on that. Can you tell us a little bit about it? So, yeah, I, I did make sure to listen into JPM. Uh, it's both Dexcom and Abbott's presentations. They're the two primary manufacturers of uh, continuous glucose monitors, which a lot of people with diabetes are switching to to measure their blood glu glucose um, in obviously a more continuous fashion. Um, so I spent about the last year diving into these devices and what they mean for different populations. There's obviously type 1 diabetes uh, was the primary adopters of the technology, but increasingly both the companies and uh, patients are uh, adopting CGMs for type 2 diabetes, primarily people who use insulin uh, really intensively to manage their disease. Um, but these companies obviously want as big a chunk of that you know, 90 million plus market uh, in the U.S. as they possibly can. So there's uh, sort of an increasing debate in science about just how big of a group of people with type 2 diabetes will be able to successfully use CGMs to improve their outcomes or potentially even people without diabetes. And Katie's in-depth report has much, much more on that evolving space and all of its many implications. You can find it at reports.statnews.com. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So noticeably absent from our JP Morgan conversation was the company whose presentation both of you guys said was the one you were most looking forward to listening to um, at the conference, Biogen. So we decided to make this its own segment this week just because there was so much news. And I think 
we probably have to start with the biggest news, which was uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services coming out with a coverage decision for Aduhelm and sort of more broadly, all amyloid targeting Alzheimer's monoclonal antibody drugs. Um, Damien, do you want to sum up what the news was and, and how it compared with expectations? Absolutely. So a small bit of foregrounding, roughly 80% of the people in the United States who would be eligible for Aduhelm, Biogen's Alzheimer's disease drug, are covered by Medicare. So it's massively important what Medicare thinks about this medicine. So we were all looking forward to this draft decision uh, where Medicare would kind of weigh in on just how they would approach coverage for it. That decision came on Tuesday evening, and and frankly, it went about as poorly as could have been predicted for Biogen. Medicare basically said they will only pay for this medicine for certain types of patients who meet certain standards of Alzheimer's disease who are enrolled not only in a clinical trial, but in a placebo-controlled randomized clinical trial. So, you know, hearing from Biogen and other people, that means that this drug that we once thought could potentially treat millions of Americans will, at least in the short term, be reimbursed for hundreds to maybe single-digit thousands, as if this draft, of course, becomes finalized. So this was not the nightmare scenario for Biogen, but close to it. So there's been, you know, gnashing of teeth and rending of garments since Tuesday, both from, you know, Biogen, which is upset by this. There are a few Alzheimer's groups, Alzheimer's patients groups, um, who perceive this as being far too restrictive a proposal. And then on the other side, as people listening to this podcast will know, there's a great many people in academia, um, in science, in on Wall Street, who think that Biogen's drug is not particularly effective, who were encouraged by this. Basically, people looked at this as Medicare putting its foot down where the FDA, which of course approved this medicine in June, was arguably too lenient or maybe abdicated its responsibility. So the implications, which we can talk about um, on this podcast, but the implications are vast of just this small news item. And of course, Adam, this is a sort of draft proposal um, where there's an open public comment period for the next 30 days, and then it gets finalized or or not potentially by April, right? I mean, so what is the expectation kind of going from here? Right, Meg. I think the expectation is that this draft proposal, which, you know, Damien outlined and is really restrictive against Biogen and against Adyahelm, is not going to change very much. Now, obviously, Biogen uh, is strenuously protesting uh, this uh, draft proposal and how restrictive. I mean, essentially, what Biogen is saying, and we just got off a conference call uh, with Biogen that they had with analysts Thursday morning, which essentially they're saying this is sort of almost like a non-coverage decision uh, because of how restrictive it is. They are both protesting, you know, during this sort of this now risk review comment period, uh, they are going to try to convince CMS to to loosen the restrictions that they have placed on the drug. And they are also encouraging other stakeholders, patient advocates, other physicians to, to also weigh in on the CMS draft decision in order to try to make essentially what would be the final determination um, more favorable uh, for coverage of the drug. And you guys have pointed out, and Biogen, I guess, has pointed out, these things have sometimes changed before, right? There, There is precedent for them coming out with a draft or a proposal like this, but then it changing by the final. Is that right? Yeah, it is. I mean, so first of all, we're dealing with a small number of historical examples of Medicare making this kind of decision about a drug. But the one that I think everyone, including Biogen, gravitated to was the most recent, which was for CAR-T cancer therapies, wherein Medicare initially proposed a similarly very restrictive um, scheme for reimbursing for CAR-T, 
uh, where, you know, patients had to be in a clinical trial, all of these things. And then by the time the final uh, decision came out, it was far, far more lenient. And so Biogen has pointed to that. Others have as well as potentially being indicative. But, you know, it's tough because with CAR-T, which is very expensive, um, and and very inconvenient, there is no doubt that for some patients with certain cancers, it is truly life-saving. They would die without it. Biogen doesn't have that kind of data to back up Adjuhelm. We don't need to open that can of worms, but people may recall there's strenuous debate as to whether Adjuhelm even glancingly improves the lives of patients with Alzheimer's disease, let alone being life-saving the way CAR-T is for some patients. So it's unclear, I think, just how instructive that example might be as we go forward toward this final decision for Adjuhelm. You know, it's been really fascinating watching the reactions to this this week. And one of the most interesting I saw was from Harvey Berger, who was the former CEO of Ariad, uh, which was a cancer drug company, biotech company. Um, He tweeted... Biogen helped start the biotech industry many years ago and developed life-saving medicines. Now it is leading the way to bring the industry down and open the door to federal price controls. Board governance has failed abysmally. We should note, Harvey Berger has some history with some of the members of Biogen's board who were involved in a proxy fight at Ariad, uh, so he's not a totally impartial observer here. But at the same time, this is the industry criticizing itself. And Adam, let's step back to the posture that Biogen's CEO took in the J.P. Morgan presentation. How did he describe the company's actions around the pricing, and how has that evolved through this CMS decision? Well, if you recall back when they got the drug approved and it was launched, you know, they launched it at $56,000, which the company said was justified by the data and the benefit for patients. And, uh, you know, obviously they got a lot of pushback and there was a lot of criticism and, and you know, sort of Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking, people have said that, you know, Biogen has gotten itself into this mess in large part because most people thought that the price was completely unjustified, uh, and that sort of you know that that hurt them. There was a lot of backlash. They you know we as we know they cut the price in half, which on during their J.P. Morgan presentation, uh, Michelle Vunatas, their CEO, called a courageous decision on Biogen's part, which I think you know obviously got a lot of eyes rolling. But I also want to get back to your point, that Meg, that you made. I think you made a good point in, in kind of pointing out what Harvey Berger said. Uh, you know, because there's this idea that within the industry that, you know, the FDA should be the one that reviews drugs, approves drugs based on efficacy and safety data. Um, what we hear, we have a situation like, you know, for all intent and purposes, you know, CMS is sort of, you know, kind of stepping into that role here by saying, look, by disagreeing with the FDA and saying these data don't support this drug's efficacy and safety, therefore we are putting these you know ma- relatively massive restrictions on it. So I think from the industry's perspective, what they're worried about is that CMS is sort of blurring the lines of sort of what what their role is, and it seems like you have two agencies within Health and Human Services. You've got you know CMS and you've got FDA, and they're almost fighting with each other, right? I mean, because, you know, there is there are people who look at this and say the FDA created this mess because they approved they well approved this drug under an accelerated approval guidelines. Um, and they shouldn't have done that. And now CMS is basically cleaning up that mess. 
Well, and it's interesting, Meg, to your point about, you know, Harvey Berger's reaction and the broader just how the drug industry is is watching the situation and might be affected by its outcome. You know, on the one hand, you know, we've heard opinions not not unlike Harvey's that that Biogen has kind of gone rogue and is maybe muddying the waters for other people. But there's a way of looking at this CMS decision, which, as you mentioned, covers not only Aduhelm, but all monoclonal antibodies that target amyloid to treat Alzheimer's disease, which includes quite a few other therapies. This decision, which is restrictive on those drugs as well, which haven't yet been approved, wouldn't have happened if not for the process by which, you know, Biogen has found itself in this place. And so most specifically, Eli Lilly and Roche, who are both uh, in phase three with with monoclonal antibodies for, for amyloid of their own, are roped into this. And so as it stands, granted, this is a draft and we don't know, but if it's finalized in this form they will be penned in by these very, very restrictive things um, if and when their drugs are launched. Now, it's it's likely that CMS would revisit it if one or both of those drugs is demonstrably successful in those ongoing phase three trials. But at least in the short term, I mean, the ripple effects of this are are pretty sizable. And, and we've seen a lot of opinions coming in from a lot of places. And I mean, the net of it is, speaking of, of Michel Venatsos, there was his commentary on, on being courageous uh, earlier this week, which I don't think went over that well from from independent listeners. But even this morning, he suggested that uh, you have to question the motive of CMS um, in in this draft decision. And it just seems like Biogen is taking on this like really defensive siege mentality. And I, I'm not sure, you know, other people in the industry who are looking at them as, as leaders in this space or pioneers, as, as Venatsos described them, I'm not sure they're very happy with the representation they're getting from Biogen. Where do they go from here? I mean, what happens if they don't get this decision changed? Well, on the call that they had this morning, I mean, obviously, as I said before, you know, they're working really hard to to, to get this uh, decision, this draft decision amended when the when the final decision is is released. But, you know, they were asked that question, like, what if this draft recommendation is the final recommendation. And and it was actually kind of interesting what Michelle Venata said. I mean, they said that, look, all things are on the table, um, including additional cost cutting. Uh, as we know, the company is already committed to about $500 million in cost cuts. Um, they said there could be more. A couple of analysts actually even asked them whether they would think about pulling Aduhelm off of the market. And he didn't say no. Michelle Venatos did not answer that question of saying, no, we would never do that. He said, look, we're just going to be flexible and everything's on the table. So, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot, a lot more drama to the story as we get closer to April in the final decision. Meg, I have a question for you. Have you ever heard of targeted RNA degraders? Well, I have heard of them, but I don't know what they are. They do sound cool. Yeah, I had no idea what a targeted RNA degrader was either until this week when I wrote about a new research partnership between Amgen and the biotech startup Arrakis Therapeutics. Uh, The two companies have joined together to basically invent uh, a new class of oral drug that targets RNA molecules, degrades them, which then prevents disease-causing proteins from being made. Joining us today to presumably better explain targeted RNA degraders, how they work, and why people need them is Michael Gilman, who is a veteran biotech entrepreneur, guitar player, bio-Twitter personality, former guest of this podcast, and most relevant today, the CEO of Arrakis Therapeutics. Hello, Michael. Welcome back. Hey, thank you. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. So let's start extremely basically. Uh, Michael, what does RNA do? 
Well, you know, I like to start by saying to people that if you remember one thing from your high school biology class, it's that DNA makes RNA makes protein, right? And um, I, I think most folks listening to this podcast know that the vast majority of drugs that we take uh, work by acting on proteins. But it turns out that only about 15% of proteins are uh, are accessible with our current drug discovery toolkit. So there are enormous swaths of human biology that we could put to work for medicine, but we just can't um, get our hands on. So if you can't get your hands on the proteins, what do you do? Well, you move up a step and you go to the RNA, which um, contains the assembly instructions for the protein. And if you can get rid of that RNA, then you can prevent that protein from being made in the first place. So that's that's why RNA. And as it stands right now, we, we do have treatments, we have therapies that do target RNA, right? Exactly. That is the basis for um, these oligonucleotide drugs, uh, RNAi and antisense uh, oligonucleotides that very selectively um, um, interact by basically Watson-Crick base pairing um, with RNA molecules and either prevent them from being translated, prevent them from being spliced properly, or just make them go away entirely. So that gets us to your corner of the RNA universe, which is degraders. What's going on there? How do those work? Well, so, uh, you know, Arrakis really got started um, uh, around the idea that we ought to be able to make um, small molecule medicines that act on RNA. That was not something that people thought was possible because RNA is just a very different beast than protein um, in many ways. And we've spent the last several years um, building a platform to do that. So, you know, given an RNA, we can predict where there are um, uh, pockets, druggable pockets, and then we can do high-throughput screening and we can find compounds that bind those pockets. And, you know, we've done that like 40 times now, um, and it really works. But the problem actually is finding compounds that are bioactive uh, and actually affect the um, uh, biological activity or the function of that RNA. And that is because we don't really know the rules for RNA structure function relationships like we do for um, proteins. And so what's interesting about degraders is that you actually don't have to know what parts of the RNA are functional. You just make it go away. And um, the idea, and this is analogous to targeted protein degraders or protax, which um, some of your listeners may be familiar with, is you have a sort of a two-sided molecule. One side um, hits the RNA, the other side recruits a cellular protein that essentially trashes that RNA in some fashion. And that's uh, the basic idea behind targeted RNA degraders. What are the applications of this? Which diseases are you working on with it? Well, this application is completely agnostic to disease. I mean, it can be pointed at any RNA and therefore at any piece of biology and therefore uh, at any piece of disease. And we're a little bit indifferent to, to which targets. In the collaboration with Amgen, we're working on a list of targets of interest to them across all of their therapeutic areas. Uh, coming back to uh, Adam's question about oligonucleotide drugs, I mean, those are remarkably effective medicines um, in certain settings, particularly for uh, genes that are expressed, for RNAs that are expressed in the liver, because these things sort of naturally go to the liver. But for many diseases, you need to get the medicine everywhere, right? It, it needs to go throughout the body. It needs to get into tumor cells. And it needs to get across the blood-brain barrier. And um, in most cases, oligonucleotide drugs simply won't get there. And so small molecules that act on RNA 
uh, um, are likely to really sort of expand the utility of this approach. So, Mike, tell us a little bit about how the Amgen partnership came about. It's it's actually a great story because uh, Ray Deshays, who is the head of global research at Amgen, um, and joined Amgen about four or five years ago, uh, uh, was actually one of the inventors of uh, uh, Protax, along with Craig Cruz at Yale. And so he's been very interested in um, what he's calling induced proximity, the idea that you bring two things together inside the cell that really don't belong together and you make something happen. And that's kind of what targeted degraders are. And actually their biologic bite platform uh, um, works like that as well. Anyhow, um, turns out that Ray and I went to graduate school at the same department at Berkeley, the biochemistry department. And uh, back in May of 2019, um, we were both invited to an alumni symposium to speak at an alumni symposium um, at the department. And he and I had never met before because I, I left about three months before uh, he arrived. But we got chatting in the back of the room. Um, you know, we probably should have been paying attention. But, uh, you know, he he knew what we were doing at Arrakis. And, he's, he, and he said, hey, we're really interested in trying to figure out how to do uh, – RNA degradation. And, you know, we like talked all day about it, actually. And that really was the origin story of this. I mean, it took, you know, a couple of years for us to to get there. Uh, but here we are. So I guess getting that PhD paid off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some days, you know, um, I mean, I'm just a bureaucrat now, you know, so I mean, it's not like I use that stuff so much anymore. But but yeah, in this case, it did, I guess. So speaking of bureaucratic functions, um, we spoke about this a bit on the podcast already, but you have just come off stage if that's the right term, um, at this year's J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, which is virtual for the second year in a row. I'm curious, you know, what one, what was that like? And, and, and do you feel like this virtualized experience will possibly convince people to do away with the large, crowded, conceivably unhealthy uh, investor conference that we're so used to? Or do you think that this is only like stoking desire to return to the normalcy we used to complain about, but that we'll happily return to it once the opportunity is available to us. I, I mean, I guess the answer to that question is different depending on whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, right? I think that, um, you know, my sort of top line analysis is um, more efficient, but less fun, right? Like, you know, I mean, we're meeting with, I don't know, 30, 35 uh, investors and bankers and stuff over the course of, you know, sort of three and a half days. And there's no way... We could have done that if we were hustling between hotels in Union Square, right? So that's much more efficient. I am, of course, sleeping in my own bed every night, which is, you know, uh, which is nice as well. And I'm not quite as hungover in the morning as I usually am. Um, <laughs> but I, I sort of miss, I mean, I miss that part of it because, you know, uh, I, uh, I, I just have so many friends in this business now that that would be the one time a year that I would see them. Some of the other big news this week um, came from Biogen and the coverage decision from C. CMS around its Alzheimer's drug. We spent the entire previous uh, segment of the podcast talking about this, but there's been some criticism from within the biotech industry of Biogen's pricing actions and sort of the implications of all of this uh, for the industry. Do you, do you have thoughts on that, how this might impact the rest of biotech? No. <laughs> as a former Biogen, uh, as a former Biogen employee, yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's long ago, you know. Mike, speaking of your J.P. Morgan presentation, did you use the same Zoom backdrop you're using now, which I presume is your house, and it has like five or 
10 guitars behind you? Yeah, there's, I mean, I, there's actually 15 or 16 guitars in total here. Uh, no, wow, I did not. 15 or 16 guitars? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm not a very good guitar player, but I'm a terrific guitar buyer. <laughs> so, Mike, I want to ask you another fun question. Uh, your company, Arrakis Therapeutics, is named after the desert planet in the sci-fi novel Dune, which was also just a movie starring yeah. Timothy Chalamet, I saw the movie. I think, Damien, you saw the movie. I, I know, Michael, that you saw the movie. What, what did you think? Did you like the movie? So I saw the movie twice. We actually took the entire company to see it. We bought out a theater, and I actually watched it streaming uh, beforehand so that I understood kind of what was going on and then could just sort of lay back and let the visuals um, stream over me on the big screen. I guess, so I'd read the book, and... Um, of course, it's actually required uh, at our company. <laughs> uh, and um, and I guess I would say two things. One was it, it was not as bad as I was expecting <laughs> it to be. Um, okay. Here's my critique, my official critique of the movie. It, it was so faithful. It attempted to be so faithful to the plot details that I think some of the larger themes got lost. Hmm. Here's the part I don't understand, though, and I, and I don't really remember this from the book either, is how is it that these people had these, you know, were capable of interstellar space travel, but still fought with swords, right? Like, I, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, this is not for the podcast, but as like a true wormhead, I'll tell you, um, which is that the shields that they wear to protect you, when those interact with the laser cannons or laser guns, as they're described, it generates what is basically a nuclear blast, which is more important in the book. The movie sort of glosses over that. But so basically, they've reached a level of technological advancement such that the only way they can really kill each other is with really old implements of war. I could go I on. We see. could do a whole Dune podcast. Yeah, we could, we could we do we a whole want, podcast but... about this. And, and Meg and I can just sort of sit back and listen to Michael and Damien talk about <laughs> Dune. Yeah. Bringing to you next season, the read out loud, Dune. And, and I can chime in occasionally and talk about uh, viral poop levels in Boston. Oh, yeah. right. We didn't even talk about Which that. we didn't even mention. They're that. going down, right? They're going down. The levels of virus and poop in Boston are going down, so we're very happy about that. My, this interview has veered off in some amazing directions. <laughs> Michael Gilman, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Okay, my pleasure, as always. Thank you. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Bonato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how many guitars you have. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. <laughs>